everyone. Um, I hope, as always, this finds you as safe and as well as possible. Um, today's project is going to be a close reading of Psalm 30 that is familiar to many people from the daily liturgy, Mizmor Shir Chanukat Abayit David. You should either be able to download the source sheet or have a Tanakh open um, if you can do that. And I want to say very little by way of introduction, um, because I would like to give people a chance to hear the text. But what I do want to do is ask three questions that either we'll get to talk about a little bit at the end, or at very least, I hope that you'll be thinking about and kind of wrestle to your own responses to. One of them is, as I ask often about Tehillim, about Psalms, can people who might not share every theological assumption of the psalmist pray these words? What are the challenges and what are the possibilities there? Assuming you don't share every theological assumption that underlies the text. Second of all, what happens to a prayer like this that appears to grow out of a particular moment in a psalmist's life? When you make that part of Judaism's keva, when you make that part of Judaism fixed commitment to prayer. In other words, what happens to a text that is really an expression of spontaneous joy on some level when you make it a liturgical commitment? How does your experience of saying it, praying it, hearing it change as a result? Um, maybe as a footnote that you can ask, how can one keep the saying of a psalm like that vibrant and alive? Um, and then third, um, Given that such a text is part of liturgy, can a person who has not been healed stand fully inside of the eye in this text? And if so, high. What is and if so, how? Sorry. How you know, what does it look like for someone who has been pleading for healing and hasn't received it to express this prayer of joyous thanksgiving for having been healed? Those are pretty big questions, obviously. And you know, I'm happy to hear people's thoughts about them, especially over email um, later. But um, those are just kind of the ones I want you to, I want to invite you to keep in the back of your mind as we go here. And I need, if possible, a, as always, a volunteer to read in the Hebrew. I will um, recite the JPS translation as we go and then kind of nitpick with the translation later on. Um, let's see here if I can since I don't have any hands up, or actually I'm getting blocked here. Hold on one sec, I'm sorry. Um, gallery view, I've lost the gallery view. Oh, I can't have a gallery view because the sources are up, I think. Okay, um, Danny Grossberg, can I rope you into doing this? So you read a verse, I'll, I'll translate the JPS translation and then we'll go, okay? Mizmor Shir Chanukat Habayit LeDavid. A Psalm of David, a song for the dedication of the house. Aromimcha Adonai Kidilitani Velosimachta Oivaili. I extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and not let my enemies rejoice over me. Adonai Elohai Shivati Elechavatirpaeni. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Adonai Heelita Minshaol Nafshi Chitani Miyordi Vor. O oh Lord, you brought me up from Sha'ol, preserved me from going down into the pit. Zamru Laranai Chasidav, Bahodul Zecher Kodjo. 
O ye faithful, O you faithful of the Lord, sing to him and praise his holy name. Ki rega ba'apo chayim birtsono ba'erv yalin bechi vilabokerina. For he is angry but a moment, and when he is pleased, there is life. One may lie down weeping at nightfall, but at dawn there are shouts of joy. Vani amarti b'shalvi bal emot le'olam. When I was untroubled, I thought I shall never be shaken. Adonai birtsoncha he'amadata laharari oz. He starts afanecha ha'iti nivhal. For you, O Lord, when you were pleased, made me firm as a mighty mountain. When you hid your face, I was terrified. I call to you, O Lord, to my Lord I made appeal. What is gained from my death, from my descent into the pit? Can dust praise you? Can it declare your faithfulness? Shema Adonai v'choneni Adonai heye ozer li. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. O Lord, be my help. Hafachta mispedi l'machol li, pitachta sakiv ta'azreni simcha. You turned my lament into dancing. You undid my sackcloth and girded me with joy. L'man yizamer chachavod v'lo yidom Adonai Elohai l'olam odeka. That my whole being might sing hymns to you endlessly. O oh Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Great, thank you, Danny. Um, so, okay, a couple of things just to get us started here. One of the kind of most fundamental and basic questions about this text is whether it is about illness specifically, or might it be about more generically some kind of misfortune. Many of you will remember that in the last session we talked about how um, part of the power of the Psalms is perhaps paradoxically in their ambiguity and elusiveness. The fact that they don't specify circumstances so concretely allows people in different kinds of situations to imagine themselves and find themselves in the text. Um, I, I think that if you just read this text Certainly without the superscription, without the Mizmor Shir Chanukatabaita David, you would likely come to the conclusion that it is a text about illness and healing. However, and I think this point is really, really critical, the image of illness and healing is not infrequently used metaphorically in the Hebrew Bible, in Tanakh. And I gave you um, on your source sheet several examples of that. And that's important because it is possible in any text you have to, like this, you have to question whether illness might be a metaphor for exile. Um, and healing, in contrast, would be an, uh, a metaphor for the ending of exile. That becomes especially relevant here because of all of the superscriptions in the book of Psalms, none is odder on the face of it than the superscription to this one, right? We begin with Mizmorshir to David, a psalm, a song for the dedication of JPS here hedges, the house. Probably you would have normally translated the temple, Le David. And then we talked about a couple of times already for David, by David, for the Davidic king and the musical tradition of David, whatever Le David might mean. Now, on first reading, one is left to wonder 
why is there a psalm that appears to be about a person healing from illness? And the superscription added to it is a song for the dedication of the temple. I mean, it is really very odd. And I'm not sure I can make the oddness go away, but the best explanation I have for it is whoever added the superscription, and superscriptions are thought of by scholars as some of the earliest examples of Midrash in the Bible itself. They are interpretive. They are usually not seen as you know, original to the Psalms. So whoever attached this superscription, whoever attached that to this particular Psalm, I think clearly took a Psalm about illness as metaphorical. In other words, as referring to what it was like for Israel as a whole to operate with no access to a temple, right? And so when you then see, you know, this is just a great example of a midrashic reimagining of what a psalm is doing. A psalm that was ostensibly about an individual being sick is now understood as a psalm about a collective that has been restored to health, that is to its rightful place, that is in a rebuilt Jerusalem. Um, you know, there might be other possibilities that you could offer here for what's going on, but I think that that probably makes um, the most sense. I, I guess I should add, because this is important for the history of Jewish liturgy, that there is an old view, an older view, um, um, that this psalm is about the victory of the Maccabees and the rededication of the temple that followed upon their victory. And as early as Masechet Sofrim, one of the minor tractates in the, of the Talmud, um, this psalm is associated with Hanukkah. Um, by the way, I, I think I mentioned this last time, but also keep in mind for the question of what Lidavid means. If Lidavid is taken to mean by David, this is a particularly odd psalm to attribute to David, given that he never lived to see any temple, right? Um, which is why I think JPS translates house in an attempt with certain traditional scholars to take this psalm to be about the dedication of the royal palace. That seems to me to be very unlikely, but you understand what drives them, I think. Okay. Now, so we have here, um, as we get to the psalm itself, which JPS, I extol you for you have lifted me up. I, I want to actually just probe and maybe read a little more literally so that we get a better view of the imagery that this text is playing with and drawn to. Aromimcha, um, I will raise you up, right? I will elevate you, God. I will raise you up because kidilitani, which GPS again renders you lifted me up, but dilitani. Some of you who speak modern Hebrew will be familiar with the word dli for bucket. Kidilitani, you have scooped me out. You drew me out of the water. Death, as we'll see, is imagined as a deep pit. Many times in Tanakh, death is a bore. It is a deep pit. So when God saves the speaker, God, as it were, reaches into the pit of death, pulls him up, draws him out. And the psalmist, in response, essentially says, you lifted me out, so I will lift you up. That's the kind of physical visualization um, of, 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 of what's going on here. You lifted me up, therefore I will raise you. And then the reason is, or and in addition, 
You have not let my enemies rejoice over me. The NIV translation, I think, actually is, is more astute here, right? You did not allow my enemies to gloat over me, which I think captures what simachta here means much better, because the rejoice would be in his downfall and suffering. And please recall what we've talked about in the earlier sessions about enemies are one of the great mysteries of Sefer Tehillim, of the Book of Psalms. Who exactly is being referred to um, is somewhat opaque. Now, verse 4, um, Adonai he'elita min Sha'ol nafshi, you brought me up from Sha'ol, chiyitani mi divor, you protected me, you kept me alive from going down into the pit. Some um, of the ancient manuscripts of, of this text appear to take the second line to be chiyitani mi divor, right? you save me from among those who have gone down. Not you saved me from going down, but you saved me from among those who went down, which would be consistent with what we just saw about being pulled out of the pit of death, okay? In other words, the psalmist was almost dead and God saved him. And here, Bor and Sheol are synonyms. They are the place where the dead in the biblical imagination live some kind of attenuated, um, faded, shadowy kind of existence. Um, okay, so the, 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 the kind of effusion of praise here is, I was almost dead, you lifted me up, you saved me from being gloated over by my enemies, and I really was as good as dead, and you picked me up, okay? And then he turns and says, he invites um, the people to a ritual of thanksgiving in the temple where his family or friends or whatever it might be are going to celebrate his return from illness and isolation back into the community. And what he says here is, is interesting. Sing to God, you who are faithful to him, and praise God's holy name. The primary meaning of hodu, this is, I, I, I forgive me if I've talked about this, but this is one of my favorite examples for explaining to people who speak modern Hebrew why they should not assume that because they speak modern Hebrew, they also speak biblical Hebrew. If I said to you, lehodot in modern Hebrew, you would most likely take lehodot to mean to thank. But lehodot's primary meaning in biblical Hebrew is to praise. And biblical Hebrew has no obvious way of saying thank you other than praise you. Um, at the risk of a mild digression, I will just share that I think the reason why the same word in biblical Hebrew means praise and thank is that essentially um, praise is what happens to thanks when I forget about myself. In other words, thanks is, oh God, you are so kind, you saved my life. Praise is, oh God, you are so kind. It's the moment when I forget about myself. Self-transcendent thanks is praise. The same logic, by the way, applies to year ah. Why is the word year ah taken to mean both fear and awe? Because awe is what happens to fear when I forget about myself. Fear is, oh God, you're so mighty, you could smite me. Awe is, oh God, you're so mighty. When I forget about myself, I progress from thanks to praise and from fear to awe. 
Um, okay, now, so, so, so sing to God and praise God's name. And then um, comes this very interesting statement that is a little bit hard to translate. Um, JPS renders for he is angry, but a moment. And when he is pleased, or you might want to say, but when he is pleased, um, there is life. Now, first, I want to just mention that the idea of God being angry only for a moment, I gave you some examples of that on your on your source sheets. Um, that is a very basic idea in biblical theology. Um, one of the reasons why I feel that I can say till I, you know, no matter how many times people yell at me, that the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God of love rather than anger, is because it seems to me clear from a variety of places in biblical theology that loving is something God is, and angry is something God gets. Anger is not a permanent state of God in the Hebrew Bible, love is. And in fact, without getting into a whole kind of piece of biblical theology here, anger in the Bible is on some level, most often about thwarted, frustrated love. Um, and this, this notion that God was angry briefly is probably most famously associated with um, Yeshayahu Nundalid, Psalm 54, but also, I'm sorry, Isaiah 54, and also um, Psalm 103, which most Christians who are pious know by heart, and most Jews who have never have never heard of, which is kind of sad. But Psalm 103 is in many ways all about God's love goes on forever, God's anger passes in a moment. Um, but this phrase, could mean what JPS says, for he is angry but a moment, and when he is pleased, there is life. But it could also mean um, God is angry only for a moment, whereas his favor lasts a lifetime. In other words, rather than saying Chaim Birzo no, in his um, in when God is pleased, there is life, you take Chaim to be a descriptor of of um, of time, that is to mean forever. Um, the NIV and the NRSV, for whatever it's worth, take it the way I'm suggesting. Um, now, it is worth noting, however, that to the best of my knowledge, the word chayim alone never means forever anywhere but here. So that's the argument against what I'm proposing and what they're doing. Um, but so no, in the logic of what's being said there, it seems to me to make much more sense to say a moment in God's wrath, a lifetime in God's delight, that kind of thing, as opposed to, um, as opposed to, um, in God's pleasure, there is life. And then, um, actually, I guess I'll mention one other possibility that the Semitic scholar Richard Clifford um, suggests that kirega be'apo chayim means um, that the divine anger and the crisis that the psalmist finds himself in is part of a process that leads to life. This moment, it's not, it's not a contrast, it's this moment of anger will lead to chayim um, beard so no, or will lead to either a lifetime in God's pleasure or pleasure that is God's pleasure that is life. Um, you, can, you can choose among any of those three possibilities, I think. Um, okay. Now, 
when may lie down um, you know, in tears and wake up in joy. Now, the interesting question that is, I think, raised by what we've just read, for a moment in God's anger, is what was God angry at? And there really are two very different ways of reading this text about which I confess I'm not really sure which one I'm in favor of. I'll tell you what my leanings are, but I'm not sure how much weight anybody ought to give that. Um, is it the issue that in this psalm, God's anger is mysterious? The psalmist doesn't know why God is angry? Or is it perhaps that verse 7 is a clue that will explain why God um was angry with the psalmist. So let's read that verse for a minute again. When I was untroubled, I said, I will never be shaken. Now, it is common among Bible scholars to read that verse as a confession of complacency and overconfidence. When I was all self-satisfied, Modern Hebrew, you might say, I was just kind of like full of, full of a sense of my own greatness and unshakability. And I said, I, I, I ended up with a false sense of security. Um, and therefore, um, what's being described here is on some level, a psalmist who is being punished or was being punished. I will say that other Bible scholars, um, I think they're a minority, um, basically say um, nothing here betrays any sense that he's done anything wrong. Rather, his point is that God's anger, even if it's inexplicable, is short-lived, and therefore he was able to tolerate it. And the argument that that those scholars make is that Reading Ania Marti Bishalvi Balemot Le Olam as a confession of complacency, they argue, is essentially motivated only by the scholar's discomfort with the psalm being about a God whose anger is inexplicable. I'm not sure. I have to say, I'm inclined to agree with the majority here that Ania Marti Bishalvi Balemot Le Olam, you know, I think there is something in biblical theology, and this is really, as you know, we would say, in Yana Dioma, this is really in some very deep way about the moment um, that we find ourselves in. Um, biblical theology, and forgive me, because I've been teaching online so much and I can't remember where I've said what, so please forgive me if I'm in the, in the mode of, of repeating myself here, but um, biblical theology is really obsessed with the idea, I think, that it is nothing but a grievous temptation to imagine that I am autonomous and independent and okay on my own. Self-sufficiency is always an illusion. I depend on other people and especially on God. Um, and as I think I have talked about in this session, in this, in this group, that's especially a preoccupation of the book of Deuteronomy, where the land is promised to the people and God's great fear is that they will convince themselves that every blessing they have, they earn themselves, and therefore it is permanent. And God wants them to constantly be kind of aware of their own vulnerability and indebtedness. 
um, just to be clear what I meant by saying this is in Yana Dioma, I'm not in any way, God forbid, here suggesting that what we're all living through is a punishment for anything. I'm just suggesting actually that it is a, not a bad moment to be to remember how unautonomous, vulnerable, and needy, and in need of others we really are. Um, so um, I, I, I do kind of, I, I, I think what I'm saying is that the, the notion of Baal Emot Le'olam does strike me as, from a biblical perspective, a troubling thing for the psalmist to have said, and may in fact, therefore, make sense to hear as um, an admission of failure. Um, now, verse. If you look at verse eight for a minute, Adonai Birtzoncha Hemadita Lahari Oz. I'll work on that phrase in a minute, but let's just use JPS for now. For you, O Lord, when you are pleased, when you were pleased, made me firm as a mighty mountain. That makes it sound like back when he was in an impregnable fortress, he knew it was a function of God. But my question is. Um, whether verse eight speaks from his present understanding, whereas verse seven spoke from what he used to think then. Or if I wanted to be a little bit inflammatory, I might say, even if he knew God was behind his blessings, unfortunately in human psychology, there is not necessarily, um, it is not necessarily impossible for people to know on some level that they didn't do it all themselves, and yet to be incredibly complacent and self-satisfied anyway. But my, my, my gut, and again, I'm saying this somewhat tenuously, but my gut for how to understand what he said here is, verse 7 is how he did think, and now verse 8 is him speaking in the present tense of what he now understands. Adonai b'yertzoncha, when, when you were pleased, right, then... Um, then I was um, strong like a mountain. But now, um, sorry, then, uh, but, but, but then when you hid your face, I was terrified. Um, sorry, I've, I've lost my place in my notes here for a second. Bear with me for one second. Okay, sorry, I apologize. Um, now, uh, Hebrew-wise, Hebrew is a very odd phrase. You made stand my mountain, something like that. Um, uh, altar tries, you made me stand mountain strong, possible. Um, you made me as strong as a mountain, whatever, something like that. So in other words, I was an impregnable fortress. And then again, he started the fanecha, you hid your face, or when you hid your face, I was utterly terrified. Now, the next verse um, is a good example of one of the central problems um, in Sefer Tehillim, which is tenses. It is very easy in biblical Hebrew to sometimes take phrases that are in the future and hear them in the past and vice versa. The question is here in verse 9, what is being said? It appears that he is now praying to be saved. Eilecha Adonai Ekra vel Adonai Etchanan. I, 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 I call to you, O God, and I plead with you. Except look at how JPS renders it, which is the standard way of understanding it here. I called, past tense to you, O Lord, 
to you, I made my appeal. Um, now, even many scholars who hear this in the present tense see this as the psalmist quoting what he said back then. But it's possible, I suppose, to read this psalm as less resolved than one might otherwise think. Um, but again, I think more likely um, it's, it's a reference to what he said back then. Um, and then he says, and this is another great Hebrew pun, um, What is it that is to be gained? From my blood? However, bidami could also be vocalized to yield mabetza bidomi. What benefit is there to you if I go silent? And of course, if you let me die, then I will go silent. Dami and domi there work beautifully together. This is not in a way dissimilar from what I talked about um, a couple of sessions ago in Psalm 19 about Avdechani's uh, harbahem. Your, your servant is careful about them. And also your servant is lit up about them, lit up by them, illumined by them. Um, another, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just mention here that these letters are incredibly open to being played with. Um, in, 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 in the Song of the Sea, we have Bigdol Zroacha Yidmu Ka'aven, with the might of your hand, the dwellers of Canaan Yidmu Ka'aven, they became like from the word dome, a stone, but yidmu could also be from dalid mem mem. They became silent like a stone. To become like a stone is to become silent like a stone. Those are puns that work together beautifully, as this one does. Um, so mabetza bedami biriditi el shachat. That is, if I. Um, go down to um, to the pit. Hayodcha afar. Does dust praise you? Hayaged amitecha. Does it does it preach your faithfulness? Um, um, I, I, I guess it's worth hearing here what is going on here. I think one of the assumptions that many psalms make is that the primary human vocation in life is to sing God's praises. That's a hard idea to wrap our neshama around in the secularized world that we live in. But in other words, if my vocation is to sing God's praise, if you kill me, the very thing I was created for will no longer happen. And we have that in various places, including in Psalm 6, which is part of Tachanun. The, the interesting question is, I think I gave some, I may have given you some more examples in the, in the source packet as well. Um, you know, in Psalms like this, and this relates to something we talked about in the last session, it's possible to read the psalmist as appealing to God's self-interest. You know, God, if you kill me, who's going to praise you? That would be unfortunate for you. Or, and giving voice to his own desire to live despite his sufferings. Look, I live to praise you. Don't make me go quiet. I think you can read the psalm either way. You might even decide that they're not mutually exclusive. Um and I, I want to make maybe two other observations, one which I find not so convincing um, and one which I think is just worth noting in terms of the Hebrew. Another possibility that is admittedly somewhat far out for Mabetza Bidami 
is that there is another meaning of the root dalid mem mem besides being silent. Dalid mem mem being silent is, you know, like koldemamadaka, silence. But dalid mem mem, according to Semitic philologists, also can mean to moan or cry. Um, in, in the heart of Torah, I played around with the idea, borrowing from, from the Bible scholar Baruch Levine, that when Moshe tells Aaron, um, when Aaron's sons die, and it says, which, you know, countless divrei Torah have been launched around the idea of Aaron being silent, which probably is the shot, but it also gives you a really different verse if... Moshe tries to silence Aaron, and then the Torah says, Vayidoma Aaron, and Aaron went right on mourning, right on moaning, forgive me. Mabetza um, bidomi, if that meaning of damam, what, they, what scholars call damam too, is here, would be what, what benefit is there in my going on crying, crying all my way down to the pit? I don't know. It's not crazy. It seems a little far-fetched, but worth thinking about. Um, for those of you who have never studied with me before, welcome to my rather bizarre inner dialogue here. I'll give you an explanation and then tell you why I don't buy it. But that's the best I can do right now. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention that I do think really matters a great deal is um, when we have here um, in verse... Um, um, Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I, 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 it's actually, let me read 11 first and then say it. Shema Adonai v'choneni, hear me, God, and JPS renders, have mercy on me. Adonai he'ozerli, O Lord, be my help. In verses 9 and 11, we have the root, chet nunun, chanan, right? Elech Adonai ekrav Adonai et chanan, and then Shema Adonai v'choneni. The root chanan actually means at least most of the time, show me grace. That is, give me what I do not have a right to demand from you. Um, and that, which is why I would be inclined to translate, even though the JPS translation of verse 11 is not wrong, hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me, I would actually be inclined to translate this as, hear me, Lord, and show me grace. Now, you know, this is one of the one of the interesting contrasts between Judaism and Christianity. You know, for Christians, the word grace is so fundamental that, you know, if you ask someone, what does grace mean? They look at you like you were off the wall. But most Jews associate that word so clearly with Christianity that if I, I've done this countless times, I say to a room full of very educated Jews, tell me what the word grace means in English. And it's very hard for people. So let me just actually make sure that it's totally clear. Um, Richard, this is an anthropological experiment for you to witness. Grace um, means, essentially, right, that which I am not owed, but I'm given anyway. That's what salvation by grace, as opposed to salvation by works, means to Christians. But the interesting question here is, is the psalmist actually saying something quite interesting and um, emotionally and spiritually powerful here, which is, Oh, God, I know I can't demand this of you, but I am asking you, right? I'm asking you to give me something that you don't owe me. Um, that, I think, is actually really quite interesting. Rabbi Soloveitchik talks about in one of his drashot how significant spiritually it is or ought to be for Jews that um, another word for bakasha, 
for asking God for things is tichina, which means requests for grace, not demands. The reason I have mixed feelings about that is that there are quite a few psalms in which it's clear that the psalmist believes the psalmist is fully within his rights to make demands upon God and doesn't think it's all grace. He thinks God, by entering into a relationship with him, has obligations. But in any case, here, there is this moment that I think is quite moving about, you know, oh God, um, please show me grace. I can't demand this. I can only ask for it. Now, to return to, to return to something that we already talked about the last time as well, Shema Adonai Vechoneni, hear, O God, or listen, God, and show me grace. Adonai Ozerli, O God, help me. This goes back to that idea that we talked about that for these texts, God's presence or solidarity is insufficient. What they want is to be saved, to be rescued, to be healed. And that, again, might return us to the question I asked at the beginning about, you know, how does one navigate or negotiate to the extent that you find these texts to be liturgical in your life in some way, um, a place where the psalmist might have a theology that you don't fully find yourself standing in, you know, standing inside of. But I think there's, you, you could even argue to be anachronistic that from the perspective of these psalms, a lot of more, what I will call liberal versions of traditional theism. That is the idea that there really is a transcendent God who has a will and some kind of personality and yet doesn't actively intervene to save people, but, but is more about presence, that this psalm, as it were, critiques that kind of theology and says, that's not good enough, right? I want salvation, not just solidarity. I want to be rescued, not just to have you knowing that you're here with me, knowing that you're here with me and a buck 50 will not get me on the subway. I'm saying that to be offensively for a reason. I'm just trying to kind of provoke what might be at stake in this conversation. I fully expected there would be people who would say, what are you talking about? It gets me everything I would ever want. Okay, so I, 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 I'm, not, I'm just trying to understand what might be at stake in the, the theological and the emotional dimensions of the theology here. Um, then I'm just gonna, gonna finish up the Psalm and then go through the questions, which I have not been looking at in order to, unlike last time, not lose my, my train here. Um, um, this is a flip of Lamentations chapter 5. Um, um, is lament. Machol is dance. So you took my lament and you turned it into dance. Pitachta um, saki, the images that you took off my sackcloth. Vateazreni simcha, and you clothed me, girded me, with joy, which might refer to some kind of festive attire or might be more purely metaphorical. You know, my clothing is, I was, I was clothed, meaning like surrounded by, enveloped um, in joy. Lima'an, which is a hard word here, um, so that, is salvation so that God's praises can be said? Lima'an yizamercha chavod velo yidom, that my whole being might sing to you and not be silent. There is my bolstering of why I think the mabetza bidami might be an intentional pun, because here you have yidom, which clearly means to go silent. So I, I suspect that that's a, that's a, you know, a conscious um, play. So that my, my being um, can praise you 
um, can sing praises to you and praise you without cease. Um, I have to confess that this is one of the cases where I don't know why Robert Alter chooses to render this verse, oh, let my, in other words, as a, as a plea. I'm not sure why Lema'an, why he takes Lema'an to mean that here, to be honest. Um, I'll just say one other thing, that the word kavod, JPS, renders my whole being. Some of the ancient Greek translations here have kaved, my liver, which in the metaphor of body parts in the ancient Near East would be sort of like heart, the place where I feel and have conscience. Um, JPS rather, uh, N uh, NRSV rather colloquially translates my soul, which is problematic for multiple reasons. Um, now, one thing about structure here is that it began, I, I want you to see the, the literary envelope. If you look at verse two, Aromimcha kidilitani, I will praise you, and there is the reason for my praise. In verses 12 and 13, there is the reason followed by the praise. Right, that's the envelope. Was that clear what I meant by that? A, B, B, A. In the beginning, praise, explanation, and at the end, explanation, praise. Um, and I think it's worth noting, this may be really, will be my last observation here, Le'olam Odeka um, is a tremendous reversal of Balemot Le'olam. If Balemot Le'olam really meant, I will never be um, shaken, here, Le'olam now becomes a statement of gratitude and indebtedness. Le'olam what? Not Balemot, but rather Odeka. I will praise you. I will realize that self-sufficiency was an illusion. I am always dependent upon you. Um, I think that's actually kind of a magnificent literary play um, that goes on here. Now, let me begin to look at some of these questions. Um, and if we have time, that's one other thing maybe we'll get to, but I, um, okay. The, the first ones are a little ways up, so I'll, I'll help um, just find where the questions began. The first question, um, well, there's one sort of very quick question about um, why two reishis in Harari. Um, That's and just then, a literary uh, ancient Hebrew thing. That's okay. not, not all that particular meaning there. By the way, Lex, I'm a little disturbed that you didn't quote for everyone to see Sarah Brooks's beautiful observation about my beard, which I thank her for. Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> and actually, I do want to actually say something about Sarah's comment earlier, if I could. Seems this is more about depression rather than a physical illness. Yeah, well, so I guess it's a really interesting observation. I think that it is possible to read that. But again, to go back to what I've been talking about, because the situation is intentionally vague, it's very hard to know what is about depression and what is about the emotional consequences of severe physical illness. I'm not sure you can tease that apart in a text like this. I think they're both plausible readings. So I, I appreciate your mentioning that. I'm not sure that that's a resolvable question. You may actually just, you know, I would say in, from a religious perspective, rather than a kind of historical critical perspective, you should hear in this whatever resonates. Um, from a historical critical perspective, I'm not sure that's a really um, 
discern uh, that that difference can be really at the end of the day discerned in these texts. Um, sorry, Lex, did you have questions you wanted to highlight? No, I was just I was just hoping because I figured you might have to scroll a little bit to find oh, them. But the, yeah, the so next I'm, one, I'm okay. I yeah. think here. Great. Um, the old JPS Richard points out renders in verse eleven. Be gracious to me. Great. I'm happy to hear that. Um, um, Emily M. Fish asks, do you think verse four is supposed to make us think of the Joseph story or is that just my brain on a hamster wheel? On its hamster wheel, um, no less. Um, interesting. Is there a middle ground I can choose between those two options? Which is that canonically speaking, it makes sense that a Jew hears a reference to Joseph being drawn out of the pit but I'm not sure I see any reason to assume that every image of being drawn out of the pit in a psalm is somehow an allusion to Joseph. So I would want to split the difference with you there. A canonical reading, in other words, just in case that term is not clear to people, is you know, given that the canon has certain texts, when you read the canon as a whole, there are certain connections you can make that may not have been intended by either of the original texts, but that may not matter. Um, much of Talmudic discourse does precisely that. Um, Talmudic discourse about Tanakh. Um, Riva says, what right does the psalmist have to make that demand in verse 11? Well, if, if you meant what I think you meant, that's why he's asking for grace. But again, many psalms of lament do seem to believe that they do have a right to make such demands of God. There is a kind of bilateral relationship. Um, you don't have you know, this posture always, or even most of the time of, you know, oh God, I'm sorry, I don't mean to ask you anything. Please forgive me for disturbing your holiness. It's not like that. Again, as I talked about, I think, you know, once or twice before, that's what makes the Psalms of Lament so audacious and so shocking to a lot of people. Um, what is the significance, Richard asked, of the fact that the language of Psalm 38 about God hiding God's face and the Psalmist fear is used in Psalm 104.29 to refer to animals. Richard, you and your intertextuality, I can't do all this at once. Hold on. Let me let me just go back and take a look again. That's a text that I hope to do in this series. Um, if you would like to unmute yourself, you should feel free to tell me what you think is going on there. I mean, I, I guess I would just say that I think Psalm 104 um, which is, by the way, for, for Jews who are kind of really actively inside of liturgy, is the psalm for Rosh Chodesh, but what we call colloquially Barchi Nafshi. Um, in, in that text is in part about the radical dependence from moment to moment of all creation on God. And actually that God, you know, lets all creation eat out of God's hand. And so I suspect that here and there, what you both have is the sheer terror of realizing oh my God, I'm really dependent on God and I don't know where God is. So he here is part of, you know, this larger um, experience that creation as a whole um, is, is, is invited to be reminded of. Um, Richard, if you want to unmute and add to that or, or, or you know, take issue, feel free. Um, in the meantime... Um, Joe says, thinking about this and his place liturgically, the last verse leads us very nicely into Pesuchete Zimra. Yes, exactly. I think that's a, a, exactly. Um, I don't know. That's a, my colleague Ellie Confer question about if that's how it ended up there, but it is really striking. 
um, um, in other words, just to make to flesh that out, if it wasn't obvious, is that you have, you know, so that my 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 very being will never stop praising you, and then I immediately move into, you know, a very large collection of prayers of praise. Um, Sarah's comment: It wasn't a question. Well, I chose to make it. <laughs> uh, are there sources exploring the psychological attachment aspects of terror when the psalmist experiences that God's face is hidden? Interesting question. Um, I would say this, and I don't know if this is what you mean. So, Julie, if I'm totally misunderstanding your question, feel free to tell me that. I, I think that... Um, there is a growing body of literature that tries to take things like attachment theory, object relations, and then especially trauma theory and use them as a lens to which to, through which to interpret certain texts. There is a tremendous amount, I shouldn't say a tremendous amount, there is a growing body of literature in particular about Jeremiah and trauma studies and the ways that Jeremiah interweaves devastation and hope in ways that can be quite dizzying for the reader. Um, I, this is not literature that I'm particularly on top of at this point, but it, it is there. Um, and there is literature on the psychological experience of God's absence as well. Um, Richard, you write the words are identical. Are you refer? I, I assume you're referring to Psalm 104, but tell me if not. Um, yeah. Um, I'm still stuck in the superscription, Joe says. How many Psalms could the superscription could have been applied to and still made sense and why this one? So that's, Joe, that's actually what I meant when I said, I can do my best, but at the end of the day, I'm, it's still gonna be a little troubling to me. Um, so uh, yeah. Um, um, Shoshana says, the liturgical history theory is that Hanukkah Tabayit connects to the sacrificial readings before it. Yes, okay, but does that, and that is meant to be separate from Psukei de Zimra, or that's what links the sacrifices to Psukei de Zimra, which would be my question. Um, okay. More reaps, okay, to Zimra from Betsy. Also that whatever yesterday, last night was about, there can be Baboka Rina. Very, very interesting. Um, we invite ourselves into that. Yeah, I mean, you have a bunch of places where the morning is envisioned, understandably, psychologically, as a time of possibility, whereas the evening um, is a time of great um, fear and anxiety. That's why, for example, Lahagid Baboker Chazdecha in Psalm 92, I believe it is, the Psalm for Shabbat. Lahagid Baboker Chazdecha, to talk about your love in the morning, Ve'emunatcha, and your faithfulness, Balelot. Um, so that would be my, my you know, I, I, think, I think that may be going on there. I'll also just mention here, at the, at the very far removed from the Psalms, that there is an extraordinary drasha of Rav Kakoin of Lublin, one of the great Hasidic masters of the 19th century, who talks about how the reason we talk about God's Ahavarabba in the morning and Ahavat Olam, God's enduring love in the evening, 
is because the morning is a time of vastness and explosiveness, explosiveness, sorry, effusiveness. You know, the, the, the light is everywhere. There's new possibility. But in the evening, there is avat olam, there is enduring love, because that's not a time for great passion. That's a time for commitment. Um, very, very beautiful. Actually, in, in the chapter of the book I'm writing about marriage, um, I actually use that as a way of thinking about how marriage works. You know, young people expect avaraba at all moments and then realize that an awful lot is about avat olam. Um, um, Rachel says, can you say something about Heschel's dichotomy between transcendent and the imminent? Can, Rachel, can you say something about what you mean by that here? How are you, how are you getting that here? Um, or, or, or what's what's the angle that draws you to that here? Because I'm not totally sure I see it yet. Um, so, okay. Um, I think that, oh wait, sorry. I was referring to your early comment about solidarity versus redemption. Aha, aha, aha. Yes. I think that that is the yeah well okay let me let me say this um was it Richard Nixon who used to say let me say this about that um um I think that for the bible as for Chazal um as for the rabbinic sages the notion that a transcendent god who was not imminent or an imminent God who was not also transcendent would be enough, would be risible to them, would just be not, I mean, I, I, I know that word is a little inflammatory, but I think they would basically say that's not serious theology. A God who's merely transcendent is a God who doesn't care about the world. A God who's merely imminent is a God who is essentially powerless, feckless, you know, not able to overthrow the forces of evil, et cetera. And the dialectic of imminence and transcendence is everything um, to the Bible. Now, Heschel, as you know, you know, in a couple of places, says things that I kind of wonder if he really means, you know, God is ultimately transcendent. And he says at one point, only accidentally imminent. That use of the word accident there, I'm not sure whether he means that in some medieval way of saying it, because um, I don't think he really means that. But the the, the idea is that... In, in, God, by God's nature, is separate from the world, but God is committed to being radically imminent. But again, I think a radically imminent God, or sorry, let me say it differently, an exclusively imminent God, from the perspective of the biblical writers, is a God who's not relevant, a God who's otios, if you will, like doesn't really matter, because he can't do, and I use here, he, and he here advisedly, he can't do what he has promised. Um, I still find personally that, you know, any Jewish theology that essentially ends up picking imminence or transcendence ends up losing the heart of what goes on in Jewish theology. You could say that the great example of transcendence without imminence in the Middle Ages is the Rambam, right? And great example of imminence without transcendence is large swaths of neo-Kabbalistic writing. Um, where I'm not sure that they maintain quite enough of the dialectical back and forth. Um, so, you know, as always, let me conclude by saying, I'm happy and grateful to hear people's thoughts. I apologize in advance for not always responding between living with illness and all of that. 
Um, it's hard for me to keep up with responding to email, but I read them, appreciate them, learn from them. If you really need a response and haven't gotten one, please feel free to forward them. You're not bothering me. I'm always happy to um, to get them. And I mean, a lot of you wrote after last session. I really, really appreciated it. Um, thank you. On Thursday, we're going to look at a psalm that I think is not so well known among Jews. We're going to do Psalm 39. Um, and then next week, in advance of Pesach, we're going to do Psalm 42, 43, which I want to say I am adding, I'm doing 42 and 43 because as I understand it, Psalm 42, 43 is a psalm about really wanting to make Aliyah to the temple for, for, for one of the regalim and being alone and not able to do that. Um, I have to write something about that psalm in the next few days as well. But uh, we're going to do that as the last psalm we do together before Pesach. Thank you all so much for, for um, studying with me again today. And I hope to see you Thursday. And in the meantime, really, really sending prayers, as always, for your safety and well-being. Thank you. Thank you.